Malcolm Geit has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 23. It's followed by the 16 under Harry Christopher's, singing William Byrd's Laudibus in Sanctis. A response to Psalm 23. To suffer my own dereliction for me, to be my shepherd, and to lead me through the grave and gate of death, in strength and mercy, Christ has come down. At last I've found the true shepherd, and the false just fade away before him. I will sing of how he drew me from the snares I set myself, how day dawned on my darkness, how he brought me forth, converted me and opened up the way for me, and led me gently on that path, led me beside still waters, promised me that he'd be with me all my days on earth, and when my last day comes, accompany and comfort me as evening shadows fall, and draw me into his eternity. With oil and 
Simon Warwick is a stonemason and a conservator. Simon talks to Michael Barclay about his work and also about his interest in music. My guest today, Simon Warwick, is a world-famous stonemason. He's worked on the Rose Window of Canterbury Cathedral, the Trevi Fountain in Rome, and the Temple of Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Coming from a professionally musical family, his father's the music writer John Warwick, his grandfather was the composer and conductor Guy Warwick, it's no surprise that classical music is very important to him. Uh, And as a child, he met the most famous composers of the 20th century. But after taking a degree in Renaissance history, Simon discovered his own personal vocation, and he's now preeminent as a stone carver and advisor on the restoration of temples and religious statues. He lives in Rome, but is here in Britain with a delegation from Cambodia who are examining the treasures of British museums to see how many of them were looted illegally and should go back, of which more later, Simon. Michael Tippett, tell us what your impressions were of him. Well, of course, my I was very young, um, but my impression was I was slightly in awe because I, I, I knew who he was. Then I was completely relaxed when we went there and I was so excited to see his conductor's baton. On the, he had it in a cabinet on the stairs and he let me hold it and wave it. <laughs> wave it. Uh, just an environment of kindness and, um, and, and culture, culture and kindness. What have you chosen by Michael Tippett? It struck me that uh, the mu- this one piece, which is from A Child of Our Time, was extremely appropriate to many things that are happening here and that are happening to me. And it just struck me that this was a man who, in this face of all manner of horror and adversity, fought against it and struggled against it. He was a conscientious objector. He, he went to prison. He was a homosexual, all of which were illegal. <laughs> and he cared very much about the horror of man's inhumanity to man and wrote this piece as a cry against that. The piece that I've chosen is uh, an African-American spiritual. Now, he, in 1939, heard um, these spirituals and heard that cry about inhumanity.
John Shalikwak was the soloist in Go Down, Moses, The Spiritual of Anger from a Child of Our Time by Michael Tippett. Colin Davis conducting the BBC Symphony Orchestra and Singers. We've been talking, Simon, a lot about your father and his circle of musical friends, but in fact, after your parents divorced, you lived with your mother and you were sent away to boarding school to Branston. I think that's probably where you first discovered the whole idea of stone carving, wasn't it? With this extraordinary figure who was called Don Potter, who, when I was there, he was already in his 70s. He lived to be 102. Gosh. And he had been a pupil of Eric Gill's, and Don uh, actually did the font, which is known as Gill Sands, which everybody can scroll down on their computers and find. It's one of the more simpler and pure, which is also the London Underground font. <laughs> and he was this noisy, outrageous figure who taught us how to cut stone and to carve stone. Now, of course, there's a big difference between sculpture and stonemasonry. Stonemasonry is cutting to a line, cutting to a template, so you're making arches, cornices, tracery windows. A sculptor is expressing himself more freely. Uh, that actually makes being a stonemason in many ways more difficult because, as my old te other old teacher who I worked with, who was called Fred Waring, who had been the chief mason in Westminster Abbey, used to say, there's no such thing as a good straight line. <laughs> it's, it's either right or it's wrong. Which one are you trying to do now? You've said that the most difficult thing is simply cutting a straight line. It is, because uh, there's literally no possible difference between getting it right or getting it wrong. Mm. And well, I recently did a training program uh, in Lebanon for Syrian refugees and Lebanese uh, masons. And we were teaching people from zero how to carve stone so that eventually they can go back and reconstruct in traditional ways, using traditional materials, traditional tool, tools. Because one of the dangers of destruction through war is the first destruction happens by the, the bombs and the second by the bad architects and restorers who come in afterwards and pour cement all over everything. Mm. And by the end, they'd made huge arches carved with flowers, with inlay, uh, within seven months, which was quite a struggle, but, but it was... Well, I was going to say, how long does it take to learn to cut a straight line? I would say that on that course, it took them two months. Mm. Is there a, a rhythm to working stone? Uh, there is a rhythm to it, and there's a sound to it. You can tell when somebody is starting to get it. Because instead of going bang, 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 and, and waving their wrist mm. and exhausting themselves, you suddenly hear that slowly they're starting to go ding, 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 and there's a rhythm going to it as they work down a line. The other thing that you hear is when you're when you're splitting a rock and you have to put in wedge and feathers, we call them. You put you put in a wedge with two little bits of metal either side in a line down the rock, and then you go up and down hitting those uh, wedges with a hammer, and they ring like a bell. Mm. But the whole rock rings, and uh, it's lovely because it sounds like bells, but if, if you were to hear it without knowing what I was doing, you'd think it was bells. And then suddenly they go dead. And in the moment that they go dead, that's when the rock has cracked, and then it will suddenly split open. And, and every time I've done that with students... I did it in Cambodia, I've done it in Lebanon, and the joy that you feel when suddenly this huge rock changes its tone and splits in half, 
uh, is it's a sense of achievement that is is primeval. It's, it's wonderful. Well, let's hear exactly what you were talking about there, because you brought us a, a very colourful illustration of stonecutters at work in Lebanon, where in fact you've been working recently. <laughs> Wonderful to hear that and the natural rhythms emanating from it. And they take us very nicely to our next music, which is by Mozart. Uh, this is flute music, which I think... I think you learned to play this, didn't you, Simon? Yes, I um, was fairly bad at the flute. So I used to try and kind of wing it with my teacher. And this was the one piece that I was able to wing, basically because it's in C, so there's no shelves and flats, makes it nice and easy. <laughs> and my mum used to like it very much as well, so I... I created it for her. I, yes, that's also for her. Music from Mozart's Andante in C major for flute and orchestra with soloist Philippe Bernold directing the Paris Chamber Orchestra. After university, Simon Warwick, you began an apprenticeship as a stonemason at Canterbury Cathedral. Indeed, you spent four years there working on the rose window in the western facade. What did that involve? Well... It was fascinating. I was uh, on my... You, you have to climb up and take the measurements uh, and make a 1 to 20 copy to work out the geometry uh, because it's, it's, it's an endless series of different curves and you have to find the centre of, of each radius. And then you do it on the floor full size uh, in order to cut the templates. And so we rolled out sheets of paper in the chapter house of the cathedral and it was in winter... And you, have, you can't wear shoes, so it was freezing. And I was able to draw the tracery window on, on the floor. When you're working on these wonderful places, whether it be Canterbury or wherever, uh, do you ever think about the people who originally built it and perhaps the marks they've made? And do their ghosts hover over you slightly? Endlessly. Uh, it's one of the most uh, enjoyable things. Uh, when you're working on as a stonemason on the one hand, but as a conservator where you're filling tiny cracks and you spend more time within 26 inches of that surface than anybody has since it was created. So you're sitting in front of that art, that beauty, and you immediately start to, to look at the chisel marks 
at the scratches. You look, for,、uh, you find the mistakes.、Uh, you find how they've managed to get round different problems, and you 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 wonder who they were. And that's actually part of research. Are the tools that you use now very different from the ones they would have used? Most of them are identical.、Uh, I remember actually walking through the British Museum years ago, and having a double take as I walked past in the cabinet in the Egyptian room because there was hammers and chisels in there, and I thought they were doing some work. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out that they were actually the same tools. The the lifting tools that we used in Canterbury are called it's called a three pin Lewis. There's two triangular pieces of metal and one straight, and you cut a hole in the middle of the surface of the stone and slot them in. It has a ring at the top, and then you can pick up the stone.、Ah. The Egyptians used that, the Romans used that, and we used that. Fascinating. <laughs> Trusting, keep me till my journey's ended. Journey's ended, keep me till thy blessed face I see. Hide me, O blessed Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, hide me till thy blessed face I see. Thy face I see in glory when the storm around me rages. Round me. Blessed Rock of Ages, hide thou me. Keep me when the storm clouds gather, till the sun comes shining through. Keep me till my work is over. This world adieu. Hide me, O blessed Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, hide me till Thy blessed face I see. Thy face I see in glory when the storm around me rages. Round me rages, blessed Rock of Ages, hide Thou me. Completed, Savior. And there's no more work to do. No work to do, O、oh, blessed Savior. Guide my weary spirit. Weary spirit to that happy land beyond the blue. Hide me, O、oh, blessed Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, hide me till Thy blessed face I see. Face I see in glory when the storm around me rages. Round me rages, blessed rock of ages. Mary Haddo was Minister of Bickleby Church of Scotland for ten years until she retired. Mary told this story to illustrate one of her sermons. A wealthy man 
and his son loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection from Picasso to Raphael. They would often sit together and admire the great works of art. In 1914, as winter approached, war engulfed the nation and the young man was called up to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, his father received a telegram, a telegram that he'd been dreading. His beloved son had been killed in action, saving the life of a friend. About a month later, on Christmas morning, there was a knock at the door. A young man stood at the door with a large package in his hands. He said, Sir, you don't know me, but I'm the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He often talked about you and your love for art. And then the young man held out his package. I know this isn't much, he said. I'm not really a great artist, but I want you to have this. The father opened the package, and it was a portrait of his son painted by the young man. He stared in awe at the way the soldier had captured the personality of his son in the painting. The father was so drawn to the eyes that his own eyes filled with tears. He thanked the young man and he offered to pay for the picture. Oh no, sir, I could never take payment for what your son did for me. It's a gift. The father hung the portrait over his mantle. Then he sat in his chair and spent Christmas gazing at the gift he had been given. And every time visitors came to his home, he took them first to see the portrait of his son before he showed them any of the other great works he had collected. The old man died a few years later, and there was to be a great auction of his paintings, which was to be held on Christmas Day. Art collectors from around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings, all keen to get that one special one they felt would complete their collection. The auction began with a painting that was not on anyone's list. It was the painting of the old man's son by the young soldier. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid, but the room went silent. Who will open the bidding with 100 pounds? No one spoke. Finally, someone said, who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's move on to the good stuff. The auctioneer responded, no, we have to sell this one first. Now who will bid for the son? There was silence. Then a voice in the back of the room shouted, we didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs and the Rembrandts. But still the auctioneer continued, the son, the son, who will take the son? And finally a voice came. It was the longtime gardener of the man and the son, and he said, I'll give you £10 for the painting, because being a poor man, it was all he could afford. We have 10, an opening bid. Who'll give me 20? Give it to him for 10. Let's see the masters. 10 is the bid. Won't someone bid 20? 
the crowd was becoming angry. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted the more worthy investments for their collections. The auctioneer said, going once, going twice, gone. And the gavel fell. Cheers filled the room and someone exclaimed, now we can bid on the real treasures. The auctioneer looked around the room filled with people and then announced that the auction was over. Everyone was stunned. Someone spoke up and said, what do you mean it's over? We didn't come here for a painting of the old man's son. There are millions of pounds worth of art still in here. What's going on? The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the old man's will, only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. And whoever took the sun would inherit the entire estate, including all the other paintings. The man who took the sun gets everything. 2,000 years ago, God gave his son. And much like the auctioneer, his message today is, the son, the son, who will take the son? Because you see, Whoever takes the sun gets everything.